0: morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Pleased to bring you what we call the uh, the American view of law and government. That's the view of our founders, the view that they recorded in the Declaration of Independence. And I hope you all had a wonderful 4th of July celebrating the Declaration. Phil, Phil did you family do anything uh, particular for the celebration of the 4th this year? Uh,
1: not really. Uh, things were very, very quiet here. And that was good. Uh, I guess the major change on the 4th was that finally the uh, the smoke from Canada um, had uh, kind of cleared away. We were way down into, I think, an air quality index of uh, uh, something like 26, mm. which is a lot better than 156. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was just a joy to be able to breathe clean air. That's a
0: cause for rejoicing. Yeah, those Canadians still a little connected to the British Empire, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So freedom from that pollution for the British Empire or its its offspring. Well, our family did a little something unusual for the fourth rather than going to watch the, you know, fourth celebrated with all the wonderful displays of fireworks. We went to see a movie called Sound of Freedom. And I'll tell you, it's a it's a shocking expose of the worldwide trade in children, sex trafficking of children. And the horrific reality of that movie is very well per- portrayed without anything too uh, uh, you know explicit. but you get the point, very clearly the point. And the sad reality is that the majority of where those children wind up is here in these United States. And so I'd recommend if there's a theater near you, Uh, that you go watch Sound of Freedom, Uh, check it out. Angel.com is their uh, studio, angel.com slash Sound of Freedom. Because when liberty is lost and the enslavement, they say today, worldwide, the enslavement is far greater than it has ever been in the history of mankind. I mean, that is really hard to comprehend because people look back at chattel slavery in the United States, what a horrible thing that was, and, oh, we're glad that's done but actually what's taking place today is far worse than that in so many ways and the enslavement and the kidnapping of children worldwide. Anyway, it is a very great, and I just encourage people to, to go watch Sound of Freedom because we need to understand what's happening and what our government is doing in that open border Biden policy of our southern border is exploding the sex trafficking of children. Children. You know, the kind that uh, Joe likes to sniff their hair, I guess, you know, uh, and maybe that's why he's friends with all of these very evil Cretans and is giving them a free pass uh, to continue that horrendous thing in our country. Well, I'm with your host, Pastor David Whitney, senior instructor at Institute on the, on the Constitution. And with me this Friday morning is my great collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're walking through an exercise, a mental exercise and what could be an improved version, or maybe not even improved version, but a brand new uh, constitution that would do a better job of preserving and protecting our God-given rights. And by the way, all of those God-given rights are spelled out for us in Scripture, and because they come from God, God is the one who defines them and describes them. So, for example, uh, the Eighth Commandment is very clear, thou shalt not steal. That's right, thou shalt not steal means each of us has a God-given right to own property, and we have a right to have that property protected from an illegal taking of that property that we have rightly earned or has been uh, inherit. We've inherited in a proper fashion, so we have a property right. We also have a right to liberty, uh, as well as a right to life. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, the right to liberty. There's laws in God's word against kidnapping. Kidnapping is a capital crime for which the kidnappers should be executed. And oh, one of the, uh, I guess maybe a little spoiler alert here, but one of the uh, best parts of that uh, that movie, uh, Sound of Freedom, is that the kid, one of the kidnappers is actually killed in a uh, hand-to-hand combat. And that anyway, I get a little spoiler alert there. Uh, so we have these God-given rights expounded to us in the Word of God. And by the way, one of those rights is to contract with someone regarding our labor, contract with someone regarding borrowing money from them. And by the way, Scripture gives us a very clear warning that the borrower is servant to the lender. This is in Proverbs. And by the way, that that word servant can sometimes be translated slave. So think of that. The borrower is slave to the lender. So when you, you know, you swipe that credit card, you you build up this debt that you cannot pay off at the end of the month. And so all of a sudden you're paying these days 21% interest or what have you. An enormous, egregious amount of money is being taken out of you because you didn't pay it off in full. Well, there's very clearly the borrower is at least servant to the lender, might ultimately become slave to the lender because in Scripture, there is a legal process by which somebody can become a slave. And that is they borrow so much money that they cannot repay it. And Jesus actually gives us a parable regarding that. A a servant who borrowed so much money, he could not repay it if he spent his whole lifetime working for the master that he borrowed the money from. And so he begged his master, please, please forgive me, rather than throwing throwing me into debtor's prison for the rest of my life, rather than selling my wife and children for slaves, which, you know, that's one of the ways people entered slavery in, in the biblical understanding because the borrower is servant or the borrower can become slave of the lender if they do not repay because that money borrowed was actually money earned that is property of another person. And to borrow and not repay, you know, like with bankruptcy or things like that, to borrow and not repay is an act of theft. So we're going to talk about a lot of economic things today but and, and talk about perhaps some problems in our current United States Constitution that don't deal with, or at least the way it's currently being interpreted and handled, don't deal with the realities that are established by God, the creator of the universe, the laws of nature, nature's God, uh, regarding economics, Uh, when they are disregarded, it brings a disaster upon a nation. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts uh, on uh, this subject?
1: Okay, so uh, we are talking about uh, a hypothetical new constitution, if you will, and and we're down to the area of what that federal social compact should look like and specifically today we're talking about admission to and removal from that compact so and it is obvious that all 50 of the current states in the federal system ought to be invited into the new federal social contract some states may prefer to remain under the current federal system as defined by the constitution of 1787 there's precedence for that in the formation of the united states under the constitution Neither North Carolina nor Rhode Island chose to join initially. No wars were initiated, and for the most part, these states were ultimately persuaded to join. North Carolina refused to join until a Bill of Rights was incorporated into the Constitution. Unfortunately, Rhode Island, which wished to continue printing its own money, was exposed to the coercion of its neighboring states, who allegedly threatened to tax its export to those states. That claim should be taken with a grain of salt. Since Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, binding those states intending to tax Rhode Island's exports, prohibits the states with this language. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports except that which uh, may be absolutely necessary for the executing its, uh, execution of its inspection laws. Voluntary, uh, the principle of voluntary admission The Federation of the United States existed under Article 11 of the Articles of Confederation. Canada, acceding to this confederation and joining in the measures of the United States, shall be admitted into and entitled to all the advantages of the Union, but no other colony shall be admitted into the same unless such admission be agreed to by nine states. Canada wished to pursue its own destiny, and by the framing of the Constitution in 1787, this specific invitation to join the Federation was withdrawn. That did not close off attempts to incorporate Canada forcefully into the Federation, as the federal government unsuccessfully pursued an invasion of Canada during the War of 1812. Since then, a policy of separate but equally sovereign has worked for both nations, and they have maintained friendly relations. This history raises the hypothetical question of admission into the new Federation of contiguous territory. At its provinces in Canada and states in Mexico. Initially, it is unlikely that a new federation would even be attractive to these contiguous territories until the governance of the new federation had proven superior to the prior federation. Even if it did, it is unlikely that Canada and Mexico would support relinquishing their own territory, which raises the potential of warfare. This can be avoided by the newly United States making it clear that these contiguous territories are not candidates for admission under a new constitution. It is unlikely that all 50 states in the current confederation would be equally enthusiastic about a new constitution and a new federation. Among the contiguous states, California is most likely to remain under the current federation. Perhaps Oregon and Washington would join California. States like New York and Massachusetts would find it more difficult to remain outside of the new federation, but also might fail to join. The worst possibility, a checkerboard of new and old federation states could even emerge. Tension could be aggravated if either the new or the old federation sought to bring pressure against the other, particularly through export and import taxation. Prudence requires that every attempt be made to retain friendly relations among the former United States. Efforts should be made to retain the United States as a continental common market, which was an achievement of the Constitution of 1787. So what are the relative advantages of a new Federation? It is too easy to accept the more dismal scenarios of the breakup of the Federation under the Constitution of 1787. A more balanced view of the matter would acknowledge that on the current path, what is called the United States is headed for even greater contention among, among its citizens than perhaps even civil war. The central issue is freedom, both economically and politically. There are two irreconcilable forces contending. One is centralization of government power over the individual, and the second, individual freedom. Those who are part of the first force should never be allowed to impose their will over the latter. A peaceful divorce is preferable to greater loss of freedom or from internal conflict that could result from simply remaining on the current path. In Europe, nations are no longer at each other's throats, in spite of Switzerland's refusal to join the European Union and the United Kingdom's attempt to exit it. As harsh as the idea of breaking up may may sound, humans have demonstrated a remarkable resiliency Political change. In the United States, that has occurred at least three times. One, in 1776, with the declaration of a new nation. Two, in 1781, with the formation of a new government under the Articles of Confederation. And three, in 1789, with the formation of a new government under the Constitution of 1787. It can certainly be done again, particularly if the advantages of a new Constitution are so great. But how advantageous would a new Constitution, and a new government be. By eliminating unconstitutional federal outlays, citizens in the new federation would enjoy substantially increased disposable income in an ongoing situation. Note that any comparison must exclu- exclude the effects, including costs, of transitioning to the new federation. These should not be allowed to cloud the comparison, however, since those transitioning effects will only increase with the delay in moving from the current federation to a new federation. The only way to avoid these transitioning effects is to accept them in a far more dangerous form, which is a threat to liberty, that is, acceptance of the status quo. The magnitude of these potential cost savings is significant, estimated by some as 90% of federal taxation. Note that these estimates exclude potential savings within the constitutional outlays of the current federal budget, with a current defense budget greater than the next 10 nations national defense budgets combined, certainly some opportunities for cost-cutting exist within the constitutional component of the current United States defense budget. Let's take a look at the upcoming battle between Say's Law and the Keynesian multiplier. This is a good time to consider some economic theory. Investopedia has this to say about Say's Law of Markets. Say's Law of Markets comes from Chapter 15 of the Demand or Work. Uh, or market for products a french economist jean baptiste says 1803 book treatise on political political economy or the production distribution and consumption of wealth it is a classical economic theory that says that the income generated by past production and sale of goods is the source of spending that creates demand to purchase current production the law is so obvious that it might be considered trite after all Unless people produce something that others want, there's nothing to consume. That obvious truth did not stop John Maynard Keynes from creating his own 1936 general theory, in which he inferred that Say was wrong and that consumers simply did not have enough money in their pockets. If government would only produce more money, consumers would demand that more products be produced. Adding to this basic idea, Keynes noted that there was a multiplier effect in that when government created the stimulus to the economy, as each person in a chain of subsequent transac- transactions passed on the government-created wealth, the cumulative effect would be many times more than the initial government injection of money into the economy, inhibited only by the amount of the new wealth that each individual chose to save instead of consuming. It all sounds elegant, but when one sees the total economic picture, the theory is nothing more than childish nonsense. The first flaw in the theory is that government doesn't inject true wealth into the economy. Instead, it siphons wealth off through taxes and inflation. As Henry Hazlitt pointed out in Economics in One Lesson, all government is capable of doing is redistributing private wealth. Indeed, the multiplier effect works in the positive direction for those privileged to receive the government dole. For those required to give up their wealth under this redistribution scheme, the multiplier works in the opposite direction, canceling the benefits of the injection of money. How do these economic laws relate to the current situation, and how might they operate under a new federation? Essentially, the governments throughout the world have operated under Keynesian rules since 1936, and Say's truth has been ignored. Keynes was so confident he was on the right track that he asserted that the inflation created by government inflating the money supply could never occur at the same time as economic stagnation. But that is precisely what happened in the 1970s, when the phenomenon was labeled stagflation. Today, in spite of the assurances of the talking heads in government, the media, and academia, it appears we are headed towards stagflation once again. Keynesianism appeals to those three groups, but in the final analysis is equivalent to the idea that money grows on trees. J.B. Say was correct. For a nation to consume, it must first produce. Money merely facilitates the exchange of goods and services in an economy. It is a medium of exchange, not true wealth. The creation of a new constitution and the formation of a new federation under that constitution will force the issue on Say versus Keynes. In nature, it is clearly demonstrated that either the host throws off the parasite or the parasite kills the host. There appear to be no other possibilities with government. It is reasonable to ask if major metropolitan area uh, majorities will block the will of those outside of these areas. The population of eastern Oregon, for example, has little in common with uh, the Portland metropolitan area. A detached analysis of this possibility is well beyond the current exploration. It is apparent, however, that the productive and wealthy are already leaving these metropolitan areas. If current trends continue, these majorities will be weakened and it will become even more apparent that in economics as in biology, that the relationship between the parasite and the host is an iron law of nature. Metropolitan areas are not sustainable unless they can produce enough wealth Cover their welfare outlays. Let's take a look at admission of offshore states. The incentives for admission of offshore territories such as Puerto Rico are poorly aligned with the interests of the majority of states in the current Federation. The current rule for admission of new states is found in Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution. New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union. That rule clearly is destructive of state sovereignty particularly in light of Amendment 17, the direct election of senators, which makes U.S. senators independent of the will of the states. The will of the states is vested in the state legislatures, and the federal government, created by the states, cannot reasonably be considered to allow the admission of new members to the federation. Just as three-fourths majority of states' assent was necessary to create the federation under the Constitution of 1787, it makes sense to require three-quarters of the existing 50 states to create the new federation and three-fourths majority for the admission of new states after the new federation has been created under the new constitution. Of the major unincorporated territories of the United States, Puerto Rico is the most logical candidate for statehood, with a population and territory size comparable to Connecticut. It is not clear that Puerto Rico prefers to be a state in the United States. An un, uh, an unincorporated or me, an incorporated territory or an independent nation. Its current economic status does not make it attractive as a state for the current states in the federation. Although a minority might seek its admission in order to have more votes in Congress for progressive measures, it would be less likely to be attractive to a new federation and may not even wish to join that federation. Wikipedia identifies the U.S. incorporated territories in this way. The United States currently administers three territories in the Caribbean Sea and 11 in the Pacific Ocean. Five territories, American Samoa, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, are permanently inhabited, unincorporated territories. The other nine are small islands, atolls, and reefs with no native or permanent population it is unlikely that any of these would be admitted to a new federation controlled by the state. Likewise, it is unlikely that other nations would be interested in joining the new federation, nor that the new federation would have an incentive to admit them. Finally, there is the question of admitting the District of Columbia as a state in the new federation. This question poses some difficulties, but it is clear that Washington, D.C. is a creature of the federation under the Constitution of 1787. It has attracted residents who are strongly biased toward big, centralized federal government. In that sense, granting statehood to the District of Columbia is in conflict with state sovereignty. Some districts' buildings, such as the White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, Treasury Building, and the Pentagon, have relevance under a new federation. Most of the other buildings in real estate would be a contradiction to the federation, for example, the Department of Education. One possibility would be to return the excess real estate and residence to the jurisdictions of the states that created the original federal district and, correspondingly, reduce the size of the federal district. This question is also affected by the nature of the transitioning from current to the new federation. In any case, the new federation would most likely adhere to the current constitutional rule that prevents the federal district having representation in Congress. Let's talk a little bit about the completion of obligations to the current federation and subsequent succession. First, it should be noted that just as North Carolina and Rhode Island did not initially secede from the federation under the Constitution of 1787, any state declining admission to the new federation would not be considered a secessionist state. The power of a state to secede from the new federation would be guaranteed under the new constitution to states that have already joined. Just as admission must be voluntary, so too must be continuing membership. In law, there is no such thing as a perpetual contract, only contracts with no terms that may be severed upon reasonable notice. Thomas Paine commented in The Rights of Man, The rights of man are the rights of all generations of men and cannot be monopolized by any. That which is worth following will be followed for the sake of its worth, and it is in this that its security lies, and not in any conditions with which it may be encumbered. When a man leaves property to his heirs, he does not connect it with an obligation that they should accept it. Why, then, should we do otherwise with respect to constitutions? The challenge is that when constitutions are changed often and easily, fundamental principles of governance are also easily ignored. The current Constitution is sound in its amendment ratification process of requiring three-fourths uh, majorities. Its amendment proposal process requiring two-thirds votes in both houses of Congress is not. Historically, only amendments proposed by Congress have been considered for ratification. That violates state sovereignty. The right to propose amendments belongs to every citizen and it is most effectively exercised through their state legislatures. Concerning meeting obligations under an existing contract, that is a basic principle of a contract. In the application of liability to these obligations under the current Constitution of 1787, the rule is equally appropriate. The reality, however, is that those states most willing to establish a new federation are those that believe they are already contributing more to the current federation than they are receiving from it. The challenge of having to meet contract exit obligations should be quite minimal. As Thomas Jefferson stated in the Declaration of Independence, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are mo- more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. He quickly added, however, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Prior sessions about the new constitution have been easy to digest. Few people prefer to be taxed, so a new constitution offers the hope of dramatically reducing federal taxation while at the same time increasing individual freedom. But when we start exploring what territory should be admitted to the new federation and the possibility that some states might decline the invitation to membership, suddenly we are into a murkier area. Some of the murkiness can be eliminated with deeper exploration. But in the final analysis, it is unclear what trauma this nation might endure as it transitions toward a system of governance less oppressive than the current system. In a sense, we are actors in The Matrix, the 1999 science fiction action film. We have a choice between taking two pills, red to reveal the truth about The Matrix, or blue to make us forget everything and return to our current lives.
0: Ah, Yes, Uh, that Matrix illustration is is very apropos to where, where we're at, because we're facing. I think you're absolutely right. We're facing an economic law that cannot be broken, and uh, that's going to bring a disaster. As the, the hyperinflation is really written into the the laws of the universe, in, in the way that they're printing and well, not even printing, creating digital money, and uh, you know, just uh, trillions and trillions and trillions. So, uh, I, I like your analysis, though, here of, of what, uh, which, which states would choose to obviously join this new Confederation uh, those states willing to do that are, are the states of course who believe that you know we're contributing too much already to the current uh, uh, Washington DC government and we're not getting we're not getting a good return on our investment it's interesting uh, I was looking at um, the question of what states are most reliant on federal aid uh, this is if you want to check it out is moneygeek.com that's geek spelled G-E-E-K, moneygeek.com. And here's the analysis that they did um, uh, to to put states' financial health and the potential impact. They took a measurement ranking accounting for political affiliation and so forth, but the net benefits individuals and organizations in the states receive from the federal government versus what money they send to the federal government, oh, you know, in the form of IRS tax payments and so forth and so on. So they tried to do an analysis of just you know what is the level of federal dependencies, which states are most dependent on the federal government. They did this analysis a year ago in 2022, and so they analyzed the return on taxes sent to the federal government from each state as a percentage of that state's revenue provided by the federal government. So this is one measure. I'm not saying this is the only way uh, you could measure the kind of dependency, but it would give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of which states would not be at all interested in in ending this deal because they're actually getting more money in their pocket than they're paying out. So, for example, the the worst state of all, the state most dependent on the federal largesse is New Mexico. New Mexico. I mean, I'm kind of surprised by that. Well, you know, uh, they get a return on tax dollars. That is, they send a dollar to Washington, D.C., and they receive back in in federal subsidies, grants, all the kind of different ways money comes into their state. They receive three dollars and sixty nine cents on every dollar they send to Washington D.C. Pretty good deal, you know. You get a, a more than a three for one bang for your buck there in uh, in New Mexico. Well, West Virginia is not far behind with three dollars and nine cents for every dollar spent. Mississippi with two dollars and sixty cents, Alaska with two dollars forty one cents, Kentucky with a dollar eighty nine, Vermont with a dollar fifty, Montana a dollar fifty, and Arizona, oh, it looks like Arizona, dollar seventy, Maine about the same dollar seventy, Alabama, dollar eighty, Louisiana, dollar twenty, and so on. So looking at this list is fascinating because obviously There's about 50 percent of the states that are making out better. That is, they're receiving more from the federal government than the people of that state are actually sending to the federal government in terms of taxes. And it's really surprising looking at this list because it's not just all blue states, which is what you would expect. You know, New Mexico is a deep blue state, but not West Virginia. That's a red, nor Mississippi, nor Alaska, nor Kentucky. Vermont's obviously blue, but Montana, Arizona are generally red, and Maine is blue, but Alabama's red and so on. So there's a mix of both red and blue states that are benefiting. And so I would say that those who are getting more back, uh, more than a dollar for the dollar they send, which, by the way, includes my home state here of Maryland. We're on that list, and we're down to, let's see, it's dollar twenty-three back on every uh, dollar uh, we send to the federal government. Uh, let me let me look up Pennsylvania there. Oh, oh Pennsylvania is on the losing side of that. You get ninety two cents back from every dollar you send to the federal government. Uh, so I would say that there's maybe half the states who would say, hey, we're really happy with this deal. You know, we send a dollar and we get three dollars and sixty nine cents back for every dollar we send. That's a deal. Man. <laughs> you can't get that kind of uh, interest return on, on anything you put in the bank. You know, you certainly can't get it on on most investments you would make in the stock market. So this is a really good deal. So I I, I see the problem that might be faced, and actually this might accelerate the the uh, destruction of the current constitutional republic because of all the states who are on the losing end of that deal recognize, hey, if we didn't have this enormous tax that the, You know, the trillions of dollars that Biden is spending every stinking year on things that are ridiculous, promoting LGBT insanity, transgender insanity. Oh, I, I was just reading today about the Federal Department of Education, completely unconstitutional, going after uh, schools that get rid of pornography in the library of that school. That's right. This is astonishing. But the Department of Education is going after and they've actually established a czar to to monitor every school uh, throughout the United States. And if they start removing pornography from the shelves of their library, the Department of Education is going to go after them and say, oh, oh you're discriminating against LGBTQ and, you know, ad infinitum, alphabet soup uh, kind of folks. Well, if all the states that are on the losing end of that deal, if they were all to withdraw, form a new government, which i fully, fully behind, and have a much smaller budget for whatever you want to call this new government. Let's, let's call it the federal government. But that federal government would have a far less tax take upon them. And the only states that remained in the old system, that is our current U.S. Constitution, were those who are currently on the receiving end. I think, Phil, this goes back to your illustration of the parasite. You know, either the parasite takes the life of the host or the host expels the parasite. So if all the states were truly given their sovereign liberty to walk free from uh, this current union where they're on the losing side, and let's say about 25 percent, so about no, excuse me, let's say 50 percent, so about 25 states step out. Of course, we've got to consider the District of Columbia in part of that. uh, So let's say 25 states leave, 25 plus District of Columbia remain. But where is the money produced? In other words, if you've got a dog in the summertime and then he has one tick on him drawing blood, well, that's probably not going to end the life of the dog. But if he has 100 ticks, all sucking blood, and he's got to produce enough blood for him to survive and for all these ticks, to, you know, there comes a point where that dog is gonna, isn't going to make it. The ticks are going to win. The parasites are going to win. So either the parasite takes the life of the dog or the dog decides it's going to bite off every one of those parasites and get rid of them. So. If the free states choose liberty and and rather than bondage to Washington, D.C., wow, those remaining states, it's going to make that system fail very, very quickly because there's nobody producing. There's only consumers. Uh, And this really calls into question the whole idea of debt. And this is, I think, a question that needs to be dealt with very seriously in any new design of the Constitution. One of the very dangerous powers that we have granted our federal government with our current constitution is the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. And look what they've done, you know, 30 some trillion currently, but that's not counting the unfunded mandates of Social Security, Medicare. Add all of those together, you're talking about over a hundred trillion dollars, a debt that cannot be paid. It's impossible to uh, accomplish that. And what we have done is we've made debt slaves of future Generations. That's just not my opinion. That's essentially what Thomas Jefferson said. He, he sat down and wrote a letter from Paris, where he was serving uh, as an ambassador for the United States. Uh, he wrote a, a letter to his good friend, uh, James Madison. Uh, James Madison's back here in the United States, and this is uh, dated September 6th, 1789. It's so a very interesting time. You know, the ratification of the Constitution was underway and so on. Uh, and and he set down to write, and he said the subject that he wanted to write about, that he wants to develop a little more, uh, is the question of whether one generation of men has a right to bind another, another generation, uh, with debt. In other words, if we create a debt so large that we are burdening our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, on and on that list goes, of of those who we are burdening by the debt that we have created, that is unjust. And, and Jefferson, I think rightly, argues in uh, his letter to Madison here, September 6, 1789, that that is an immoral thing to do, to burden the next generation with a debt that you got uh, yourself, you created yourself, and you spent yourself. And so You know, you wonder, wow, Jefferson's thinking was very clear on this. How did we go astray? Well, I think you mentioned one of the evil, evil philosophers who led us astray, and that's John Maynard Keynes, with his Keynesian economics, that, oh, the government just should print up more and more money and hand it to people uh, willy-nilly, and that'll create all kinds of uh, uh, economic recovery, And, and you're absolutely right, Phil, no, it won't. It just means the government... Further steals from people by inflation, a hidden means, a hidden tax. Uh, and, and Keynes was very clear about it. But we need to really understand his philosophy of life. John Maynard Keynes was not only a sodomite, prolific sodomite. He actually recorded how many conquests he had each year in his his diary. But he not only did that; he went after children. He was a pedophile and a sodomite. Um, and as that, he lived for himself. He lived for his pleasure and Keynes's economic principles were equal to his immoral principles. In other words, he had none. He didn't believe there was any fixed laws, which is why some of his writings are so uh, confusing and difficult to read because he just you know, threw out whatever he wanted live for the moment, live for your own pleasure. And he thought it was fine for government to transfer. And this is, this is quoting. Uh, the inflation tax of his tract on monetary reform, released in 1923, called for inflation tax in which a government—and he admits this—can transfer resources to itself without applying to parliament. That was England, where we talk about in our case Congress. Without applying to Congress for the money, in other words, without any representation, the government can simply steal your money, and that was Keynes's method. It says uh, this was his. Uh, philosophy. And he goes on to talk about the, the continuing process of inflation. Government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of the their citizens. There's no subtler nor sure means of overturning the existent, existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. And he's absolutely right. And he cared nothing about it. He said, sure, let's debauch the currency like he debauched little boys. Uh, yes, that was John. Uh, Maynard Keynes, an economist, I I believe, who is devoid of moral character, who could not see the basic economic principles that when you live this way, uh, when a government lives beyond its means, it destroys the wealth of that nation, destroys the wealth of the individuals. Because really, when you look at it, economics is fundamentally a revelation of the moral character of the people of that nation. You see, if the people produce nothing, like you pointed out, Phil, then, well, they're not going to be able to consume anything if they produce nothing. And so if the overall character of the workers in a particular economy or even a particular company, if it decreases, they don't have a work ethic and their productivity falls off, the result will be that there's far less and less. And ultimately, the company will have to cut their pay uh, or the inflation will eat up their pay. And there will be nothing ultimately left to purchase. The USSR was a, a infamous for this. You know, they paid them worthless script, and when they went to the store, there was nothing they could buy. The shelves were empty because nobody produced anything that anybody actually uh, wanted. Now, here's the end game scenario, and and Maynard Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, is very clear because he was confronted by some with the question of what would happen if his debt based economy was fully followed by a particular nation. And he was challenged because, hey, this is going to be disastrous. And he said this, quote, in the long run, we're all dead anyway. Think of that. John Maynard Keynes, in the long run, we're all dead anyway. And that's what a childless, sodomite pedophile would say after he passed on hundreds of trillions of debt to not his own offspring, to other people's children and grandchildren and great Grandchildren. He was a wicked, immoral uh, man. And I am, uh, and I've read this, by the way, if you want to read uh, uh, Kevin Swanson's analysis of, of him as his book, Apostate, The Men Who Destroyed the Christian West, he has a, a chapter on John Maynard Keynes. And, uh, uh, you know, here was a, and quoting Kevin, the most successful and pernicious hoax in the history of economic thought. That's what Murray Rothbard said about John Maynard Keynes. He was a fraud, he was a liar. He was a cheat, and as a sodomite, he had only his own pleasure in mind. He cared nothing about succeeding uh, generations. And the analysis Murray Rothbard has of the second is his wrong sense that he was born into and destined to be the leader of Great Britain's ruling elite. The third element was his deep hatred and contempt for the values and virtues of the bourgeoisie, that is the Christian majority. And uh, so he... Uh, was an evil man and it's very sad that most economics departments follow Keynes and most politicians both of the Democrat party and the Republican party also follow Keynes and they're following him in a direction that is disastrous to the future of our our nation your thoughts phil
1: well i' I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the the analysis you did uh, by state and uh, I you know it does reveal a completely different pattern than the one I Mentioned was a possibility, and I think the point of this is, and I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't disagree with the analysis in any way. I suspect it's absolutely correct. Uh, I think the point of all this is that there are multiple forces that will go into uh, consideration of uh, leaving the current federation and going to a new federation. Not all states will follow their wallets. Some will, in spite of the fact that that they perceive themselves on paper to be losing. Will still want to get out of the deal because he'll see that it's it's still advantageous. So, uh, but I think the point that we should make here, if we're being honest, is that nobody can predict this. It's too complex. And and basically, the way we've gotten into this discussion is that it is an academic discussion first. That we are trying to provoke critical thinking about uh, these matters. We are asking people to think about these these ideas as an alternative to the current constitution, such that they have a deeper understanding of the current constitution and its limitations. Now, at some point, maybe somebody comes along and creates political movement. But I think at this point, that is counterproductive. We don't need to do that. What we do need to do is to focus on the ideas. And we have to be absolutely honest that we do not know how this is going to turn out. But again, I think we could very well be down to, do we take the red pill or do we take the blue pill?
0: <laughs> yes. I think a, another analogy that's helpful is to see that we're on a road out in the desert that's leading directly to a cliff. And the cliff is more than a hundred foot drop to the bottom. So we're, all, we're all in a vehicle traveling towards the edge of this cliff. And you got the Democrats who, when they're in control, are, are you know, heading towards that cliff at 90 miles an hour. And the Republicans are more conservative, so they're headed to the same cliff, but just at 55 miles an hour. But the cliff is there. It's inevitable. And you're right, we can't predict exactly how it's going to fall apart. But there will come a point, particularly as they're multiplying trillions upon trillions of dollars, pumping them into the economy. And now that we have the death, and that's the reality, the death of the petrodollar, which is what has kept us propped up ever since we've gone off the gold standard under Nixon, We are producing money that has no intrinsic value. People are still using it to exchange goods and services, but the world, the nations of the world, are beginning to look askance at the U.S. dollar and realize, huh, ah, this is not such a reliable currency. And that opinion, that it's not a reliable currency, means they might be turning to the ruble. You know, if the ruble looks like it's backed by gold or something China, China's talking about backing their yuan that Anyway, other currencies that they might decide are more reliable than the U.S. dollar. But the problem is we produce very little. There's there's some that we produce, but so much of our manufacturing has been sent overseas, particularly to China, although some to Mexico and other places, but uh, that we are not in a position anymore of uh, being able to recover once we go over the cliff. And the cliff will come with, I believe, hyperinflation. That is, all of a sudden, what you were able to purchase for $100 is $1,000 and $5,000 and $10,000. And this may happen very rapidly when it reaches a point where uh, trillions of dollars that are now in circulation around the world, people decide to get rid of those you know, and decide they're going to dump the dollar on the world market because they don't trust it any longer, which means the value of the dollar plummets. And what you used to be able to buy on the international market for $100 is now going to cost you $1,000 and maybe more. Than that and, and like in Weimar Germany, the mark became virtually worthless. Well, no one worth, wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. Someone once gave me a, a German mark printed during that period, and it was printed on one side. The back side was left blank because they they were printing them so fast. And because of that, people use the German mark as scrap paper. You know, on one side blank, they write the you know grocery list or whatever because it was worthless. And I think that's the direction our, our our dollar is headed. I don't know if you agree with that or not, Phil.
1: Oh, I I agree with it absolutely, and I've I've had an opportunity uh, through a friend who is an economist to uh, listen to some of the opinion in the United Kingdom and and elsewhere, and there are voices out there uh, almost screaming enough, enough. You know, uh, if we continue on this path, as you pointed out, at some point you go right over the cliff, and I think what what politicians do not understand is that. Um, we talk about inflation as something that is tolerable. Two uh, percent was considered to be optimal in the sense that we had to have some inflation uh, in order to have the maximum amount uh, of economic growth. Well, of course, that isn't true. We had great economic growth during the, the uh, 19th century, and we didn't have, uh, we didn't have uh, uh, the same inflation at all. In fact, if anything, your your money was worth more at the end of the 19th century than it was at the beginning so i think one of the things we have to recognize here is that politicians have a deep commitment to the current system uh, basically the way the current system operates and i don't care whether it's uh, a democratic party or republican party it it seems to matter only in degree but basically politicians have a Deep commitment uh, to the, the current system. And basically, it comes down to this careers in government. You know, at one point, we thought in terms of, well, you, you went into government, you did your duty, and, and, and you returned, and and you tried to make up for the loss of time and the loss of, of income that you would otherwise have uh, with the remainder of your career. We've got just the reverse. I mean, we, if you look at the president right now, here's a classic career politician. I mean, basically, and the system is very rewarding, particularly if you make it to the Senate. I mean, there there are, I understand, no U.S. senators who are not millionaires, and they didn't start out that way. So, you know, you have to spell a rat in, in, in all of this. But basically, these are people who want to expand their value so that they can be reelected continually, so they can continue and extend their career and accumulate wealth through that career and the way it is done is to identify different special interests that are particularly um, vocal uh, have political uh, connections and to go along with these people give them what they want and they will give you what you want which is contributions to your campaign and so most of the politicians and i would say that, that Ron Paul was a glaring exception during his career. Most politicians are in that order. Most politicians are Keynesian. We we could we could say that the current uh, president of the United States is clearly Keynesian. What about his predecessor? He went to the Wharton School of Business at Pennsylvania University, which is clearly a Keynesian school, and he probably gave us the greatest. Uh, stimulus scheme of all time. I mean, that is pure Keynesianism. So we have to be very, very critical in our thinking and to remain focused on the principles involved in all of this. And that is, the Keynesian scheme is a fraud. It will not work over time. Nobody has been able to demonstrate that you can print money forever and get away with it. Ultimately, the game is over.
0: Amen. And, and uh, you're right. That, that Keynesian system is, is uh, both parties. And, and you could look back at all the presidents in my lifetime. I think all of them uh, were Keynesian, with perhaps the exception of JFK. I don't know the details there. But uh, we're, headed, we're headed for that crash. And that might sound like a, a gloomy outlook. But I don't think so. I think it's going to give an opportunity for exactly what we're describing here of a reconfiguration of our confederation. You know, that we say, look, this system didn't work. And how can we create a system, for example, that prevents that kind of special interest that you just referred to, prevents them from having control? And how can we make it such that, uh, you know, the campaigns of these who are representing us, uh, don't get to consume them entirely so much that they really are are always continually campaigning for reelection rather than actually serving the interests of we the people. So there's a whole lot to do to figure out what is the way to prevent the mess that we see that it ha- has developed in our day? But I think once we go over the cliff, I mean, and I, I believe it's inevitable. So it's a matter of time, and we're not sure exactly when, but once over the cliff, then will be the opportunity, I think, for this rebuilding. Then will be the opportunity for the states to say, hey, this deal didn't work. We were the ones, the states were the ones that created the federal government. The federal government is a creature of the states. It has its existent its existence dependent upon the states. And if the states decide, okay, we're leaving. We did that in 1776, like you mentioned, when we separated from Great Britain. We did that also uh, in the formation of the Articles of Confederation, uh, 1781, and then obviously in the ratification of our current constitution, 1787. And I would argue that the legality of secession was also what the Southern states did in creating the Confederate states of America. That was legitimate. That was constitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that said they could not secede uh, from this constitutional republic, and they legally seceded. So I think we're going to face a similar structure uh, where that secession will take place. And some people say, well, yeah, you look at how that happened in 1861. That didn't work out so well for those southern states. And true, true that is, it did not work out well for them. Uh, because the North had more manpower and the North had more uh, economic power and so many other things. But what if we go over the cliff? And how are you going to pay soldiers with a piece of worthless script called a dollar, you know, a greenback? And they won't accept it. This is the problem in the the war for independence where they were printing continentals and soldiers were getting these pieces of worthless paper and they knew they were worthless or worth about a a penny on the dollar. And and so they didn't want to accept them. And businessmen, who uh, you know had things to sell to the army we're not interested in we don't want your worthless script give us silver or gold so i think we might face something different than was faced in uh, 1861 with that secession because if the economy crashes and if the dollar becomes worthless how can you pay the soldiers for something they, they you know how can you pay them for their work or how can you pay the police officers with something that they don't value any longer so i i think it provides us an opportunity, but it may be a rough passage. I would not uh, uh, want to be uh, uh, to uh, uh, Pollyanna and think, oh, this is all going to be light and roses. No, I think it's going to be a difficult transition, but one that we need to begin mentally preparing ourselves for.
1: Yeah, if I could just make a really brief comment about the, the worst case here where you have the crisis and, and everything explodes and the currency is worthless. Uh, look at Germany. Weimar Germany ultimately. Uh, it uh, degenerated into a dozen years of Nazi Germany, and that was followed by three years of Keynesianism under the occupying forces. But in 1948, while the the Americans were on holiday, the Germans took it into their own hands, got rid of all the Keynesianism, and created the German economic miracle and became the strongest economy on the continent. So, yes, there is hope.
0: Yes, and uh, that's an excellent illustration to remind us of. When we reject that lie, that fraud of Keynesianism, we we can rebuild an honest economy because an honest economy is, you know, day's wage for day's labor. You do actually produce something that other people want to consume. There's an exchange of goods and services as, as a result of that. Well, we're in the midst of an interesting discussion on what would improve our constitutional republic, and what would be a new proposal. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL. We invite you to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. as we continue this discussion at We the People, the Constitution Matters.